the reward for many of us for retiring early is an existential crisis. Think about how I think the World Bank reported at one point that half the world's population is living on less than $5 a day. Like what a first world problem to be like, oh my gosh, I'm rich. And like, I have so much time to like deal. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's like, it almost feels very shameful to be so fortunate and not have the capacity to enjoy it. And so that's why I think it's really hard for people to talk about this because I know for me, it was like really embarrassing that everything's going so well for me. And yet I'm still struggling with my mental health. I think there's a lot of different elements to why people feel this way when they retire early. Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Diana Merriam to the show. Now, she is the founder, creator, thought genius. There's probably so many different adjectives we could use for her, but she has developed this incredible conference called Economy, and I've been hearing a lot about it. I haven't had a chance to get there. It's on my radar, Diana. I got to get there to see it. But you have a unique community of people that you gather at this conference. And that's part of why I wanted to have you here is to talk about the conference and and the folks that are attracted to this conference. But there's also this really personal side to the work that you're doing. And that's what prompted me to reach out to you and say, hey, would you be willing to be a guest? Is you've lived through some childhood trauma. You're still living through some of the consequences of that from a mental health perspective. Mm -hmm. And, And you see that intersection between mental health and money. And and success and financial independence. And there was a Facebook post that really just said, okay, now it's time I got to ask her to come on. So with all of that, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. So can you tell folks a little bit about yourself? How did you get to the place where you were hosting a conference about personal finances? Yeah, well, it's crazy because eight years ago, I certainly wasn't doing that. I discovered the FIRE movement in 2015. 15, I believe it was. I was 28 years old and I was completely financially illiterate. I was in 30 grand of debt, living in New York City, living beyond my means. And the only thing I knew about money is that I wanted to make more of it. That's really all I knew. And I was doing a good job at that, right? Like I was climbing the ladder, I was getting raises, I was so focused on my corporate career and I had the fancy career. You know, I had an office in the Empire State Building and I really helped feed my ego in that way. But I didn't have much to show for it because I was spending all of my money. I mean, when I actually took a look at it, I was spending like two to $3,000 a month going out and partying. Like I had my 20s, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm like, that's a good party budget. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was definitely having my 20s. But I think at 28, that 30th birthday was looming. And I think 30 is a very reflective birthday or one of the many reflective birthdays that that many of us have. And so I was really 
looking at my life and thinking, hey, I've got some goals. I've got some things that I want to do. It's going to be really hard to do those things if I don't get my money right. And so I started kind of really investigating what was going on here. And I didn't even know that I was 30 grand in in debt until I ran a credit report on myself. And I got to look at it collectively and I went, oh, wow, we got a problem here. (laughs) (laughs) So I started kind of doing research on, okay, what do I do about this? What do I do about my debt? And most of the content that I found online had this real tone of struggle to it. It's like, this is going to be so hard. You're going to have to eat rice and beans. It's going to feel like deprivation. You got to reduce your expenses. You got to really... They had that kind of hustle culture vibe to it. But this is going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to suck. Right? That's basically everything that I was reading about managing money and getting out of debt. However, I stumbled upon the Mr. Money Mustache blog, which is one of the most popular blogs within the FIRE movement, which stands for Financial Independence Retire Early, for those who might not know. And that blog had a totally different tone to it. It very much had this tone of opportunity. Like, look at this amazing, powerful resource of money at your disposal. And it made me realize that I had so much privilege that I was wasting. I was making a good income. I was single. I didn't have kids at 28. I had the kind of freedom and space in my life that people dream about. And I was wasting it because I was just like drinking and partying all the time. And so I did like a, I made a hard left. (laughs) And I ended up getting out of that 30 grand of debt in 11 months. And from there, I started saving and investing about 60% of my income. And that led me to retire from my corporate career at 33 years old. And now I'm 36. I work four hours a week in paid work. And the rest of the time, I work on the economy conference, which does not provide for my livelihood. It's like a, a passion project. It's a hobby business. And I'm creating inspiration and community for people on the same path. And it's just... It's been life-changing. Wow. Did you just say you work four hours a week? Yeah. That's on paid work. What's the book? The 4-Hour Work Week. That's the one I'm thinking of. Did you read... Have you read that book? I did read that. And I remember... So as you can tell, I'm like an extreme extrovert. And like human connection is is like such an important thing to me. And I remember reading the 4-Hour Work Week. And it was very much about like automating and like never talking to anyone and doing it all over email. And like really kind of limiting your human connection as much as possible. And that sounded like a nightmare to me. <laughs> so like... <laughs> I think there's some efficiencies in that book that are like, and like the concept of the book is very appealing. But I just remember reading it and being like, no, no, no. Like, I want to spend all, all of my time talking to people. I want to spend, I've spoken like a true extrovert and perhaps <laughs> why I have the podcast because I too am an extrovert. And it's, I was actually just telling a friend of mine about, well, it's actually a past guest, Ben Hakama. I was like, Ben, why do I do this podcast? And he's like, it's to get clients, right? And I said, well, maybe, but it's really a chance to just meet a lot of other really cool people and have a great conversation. So I'm glad that you're entertaining my extroversion and I'm meeting your extroversion. And here we are. So do you mind me asking, what is it that you do for four hours a week for paid work? Yeah, I host a daily podcast about money. This is 1099 income. It's a job that I took close to three years ago now. And this show, it's called Optimal Finance Daily. And it's been around for, I want to say, over eight years. I took over as a new host three years ago. 
And it's a part of a podcast network called Optimal Living Daily. And all of the shows are these narration style podcasts. So every single day in 10 minutes or less, I'm going to read you an article about personal finance. We have about 200 contributing authors. So it's like you get to hear about money from like a wide variety of perspectives. And a lot of them conflict. A lot of them are like, you should buy a house. No, you shouldn't buy a house. You should invest in real estate. No, you shouldn't. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, they're all like conflicting opinions, but money is really personal. So it is, I think it's very helpful to get kind of exposure to all of the thought leaders. And then I offer about 300 words of commentary on each article. So I batch record and I'm basically all I'm doing, I don't even pick the articles. The producers have like a team of what we call scrubbers. So they scrub the blogs and like pull the articles that are going to be good for the show that meet certain criteria. We have editors, we have people preparing the scripts to make it easier for me to read. So basically, I go to work and I open up this folder and it just has all my scripts in there. And then I spend probably about 20 minutes on each episode writing my commentary. And then I go and record and it takes me less than maybe like 12, 10 minutes for each episode because they do all the editing. So I have a dog clicker. Every time I make a mistake, I just click it and that marks the audio for them. And then they clean up all my mistakes. They make me sound amazing. And they do all the work and I just get to show up and be a voice actor for four hours a week. So it's a sweet voice actor. It sounds like an incredible game. I'm like, I'm having a little jealousy, like a healthy, like it's okay. <laughs> like that's good. I'm like, man, here's the thing. I love it. People ask me all the time how I got this job. And it's just one of those, like the universe threw me a bone. I mean, it is like a unicorn job that I don't know how anyone could repeat this, honestly, because I thought about being a serious voice actor. And the guy who did this podcast before I took over He's a professional voice actor. And I asked him, like, I think I should take this more seriously. Tell me about your career. And he was like, 90% of voice acting is auditioning and editing. The fact that I don't have to do either of those things for this job, it makes it like super, super rare. So I know that it's a really cool job. I don't know how to like advise anyone to like go down this path. <laughs> I just got lucky. Anybody that wants this job, right? Like, what I think. So I'm interested in that job, but what I'm really interested in is that awareness now of like, there's always competing voices. There's a pro and a con for buy a house, you know, 1099. When you start to, and this is what I wonder what happens for people when they go from that place of like, I'm not paying attention to my money and all I'm doing is just trying to make more money and just live, right? They're not reading Mm -hmm. personal finance blogs. They're not doing any personal finance books. But like, once you start on that journey of reading personal finance books and blogs and podcasts, Pretty quickly, you start running into conflicting advice. Oh, yeah. As people are running into that, and look, even listening to my podcast adds another voice, another lens. It's like, well, where the hell is the truth in all of this? What do you tell people about like how to navigate that? Yeah. As you increase your level of financial literacy, you'll be able to discern what applies to you and what doesn't. Right? Like, I hear people, there is no such thing really as there are such things as bad financial advice. Like, for most people, you shouldn't be buying whole life insurance. That's just bad advice, right? Like, there are certain things like that. Don't get into an MLM. That's bad advice, right? But there's most financial advice. Should you buy a house or not? Should you, like, what is the order of operations on where you should invest, how you should invest, what index funds you should pick? Like, all of that kind of stuff. Should you start a business? Should you, buy a franchise, like all the different ways there are to invest and manage money. 
there aren't really a lot of wrong answers. It's what is wrong in your specific circumstances. And only you can really discern that. And so the more financially literate you are, the more you're able to kind of suss out what applies and what doesn't. And I can see like, for example, I'll give you a great example. I understand that real, like investing in real estate is one of the most powerful ways to reach financial independence. And I am surrounded by real estate investors. I 100% agree that it's the fastest way to get there. And like, it's an amazing way to build wealth if it's done right. However, I took on a huge risk in investing in my business, right? And so to me, my risk tolerance, I'm going to invest passively in index funds and I'm going to invest actively in my business. And I'm not going to say that like I will never invest in real estate, but I won't do it right now because I need my business to be a little bit more financially stable and sustainable before I'm going to feel comfortable investing in real estate. It's not wrong to invest in real estate. It's wrong for me to do it right now. Right. So, and even like paying off my house, that's another good example. I'm not going to pay off my house because my mortgage is $600 a month and my interest rate is like 4%. I mean, some people have interest rates at like 2.9%. And I'm like, oh my God, I wish I had that. Right. And so, but to me, it makes a lot more sense to invest my money in income producing assets and not hold it up in a tangible asset. Right. And people bank on appreciation, but I don't look at my house as, as an investment. I look at it as a lifestyle decision. That is what makes sense in my specific situation. In someone else's situation, it might be different. And so, again, financial literacy increases your ability to discern what applies to you and what doesn't. But no one is ever going to care about your money more than you. And it is not possible to copy anyone's path. Right. Like I have a very specific set of circumstances, skills, and preferences that allow me to do what I do with my money. And as much as I share that with people, because I think it's helpful to like hear what other people are doing, I would not advise anyone to try to copy me because everybody has different circumstances, skills, and preferences that you're not going to be able to copy what I'm doing. So, Diana, are you saying I should not stop everything I'm doing and try to do four hours of voice acting and support my family on that? Absolutely not. I'm, I'm, te- <laughs> I'm totally teasing. <laughs> but I think, right, that's, it's like, I think what we do as humans is we hear one piece of information that sounds really attractive and then we miss all the other contextual pieces. Mm-hmm. But right, like yes. you said, well, I work four hours a week for paid income. But like, and I'm thinking about my mortgage. I'm like, oh, how does that work? And then you said, well, my mortgage is 600. So it's mm-hmm. proportionality and choices. Yep. And I don't, are you single right now or family with kids? I'm right? getting like, married next year. So I have combined hey. my finances with my fiance. Thanks. And I'm a bonus mom. A lot of people like would criticize me like, oh, well, you don't have kids and that's how you can do what you do. And I'm like, now I get to say, well, I'm a bonus mom <laughs> to a 10-year-old. So it's not that there are no <laughs> kids. Like Kids are still a consideration in our financial decisions as a couple. But yeah, I mean, again, even being in this situation with co-parenting, yeah, there's a kid in my life and it affects our finances, but not as heavily as if we had them full time, right? I have a very unique set of circumstances. Yeah, I think that's it's so important to honor that, right? And it's and I would imagine it's a period of reflection and consideration about what do I want to do, what feels good for me, what works for my partner and them, mm-hmm. and what do we need for this next stage of life and income. And maybe it might mean I have to work another job because I want to have more income or maybe it means no we really like that I would do this and make this because it means x y and z in these other areas 100% I've been having a lot of conversations with 
uh, couples that are in that same stage of like newly engaged, very close to getting engaged. And the, the money differences are part of what's stopping them from mm. taking that next step. Or they're married and they're trying to figure out what does money mean to us? Mm-hmm. How do I navigate the fact that I see money differently? And I, I get some requests where people are like, just help my partner see money the way, the same way I do. And I'm just thinking like, oh, God love you. But that's <laughs> not how it works. <laughs> it is not how it's going to work. It's not going to go down that way. Like, trust me, I already tried that game with my wife. It does not work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because even when I think about my own financial planning, I made a lot of decisions when I wasn't coupled up, when it was like me and my dog and my $600 mortgage. Right. And so... Right. I decided to retire from my career at 33 years old when my expenses were so low. I mean, on my own, I was only spending like 25 grand a year to fund a lifestyle that felt very luxurious to me as a single person, right? Well, now our lifestyle together is like closer to 50, right? And so, uh-huh. I mean, in some ways, it's, it just it changes the dynamic. And I think like people come up with these plans or fire these financial plans and the assumptions behind it are like, this is the way my life's going to be forever. But like, I would hope that most of us are living dynamic, interesting lives where like, you can't anticipate today in two years what you're going to want to do. And that's fine because money is a wonderful thing that can be adjusted, right? Like I can turn up or turn down my income as, as much as I want because I got myself into this position of financial control. You have a secure base to work from. Yeah, definitely. And you have Mm -hmm. a, and now you have a a good working knowledge of how money works. And so as life continues to unfold and you're now partnering and you get to be a bonus mom, it's like, okay, well, what do I want? What does my partner want? What does it need to include their child in our decision making? And dynamic, I love that word because it doesn't get used nearly enough, but our lives are rich and dynamic. And man, what I thought I wanted in my 20s, what I thought I wanted in my early 30s, I'm, turning 42 in a month, June 16th. I think this will come out after that. But at 42, I can hardly... I dreamed of some of the decisions that I was having. But like my wife and I now are at a... Talk about real estate investing. I want to invest in a BRBO Lake house. And you know she's not mm-hmm. quite there. And so we're working through that. But it's like, that wasn't even on the table 10 years ago to think about. Yeah, right. And so... But it gets more fun, I think, the more open you are to allowing things to evolve and change as you go along instead of, no, this is my plan. I must retire by this age and I've got to stay in that position. It's like this little rigid little soldier. Yeah. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about mental health and childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. Where do we need to go with that conversation? What's on your mind? Well, I think what prompted you reaching out to me is there was a post that was asking for comments on like, what have you learned since retiring? Or like, what's something about early retirement or retirement in general that a lot of people don't talk about? And how I responded is that I think the reward for early retirement for many of us is an existential crisis. (laughs) Say that again. The reward for many of us for retiring early is an existential crisis. And I think the reason behind that is for most of your life, from the time you were a kid to most of your adult life, your schedule is dictated by some kind of external force. You didn't, most of the time, even when you feel like you have control, let's say of your weekends, you have some kind of external pressure that's driving the ship. 
And when you're handed the keys to the castle and you now have full autonomy over how you're going to spend your time and your energy and your money, all of your resources are like, it's like this a tremendous amount of power you now hold. And I think a lot of us find that really disorienting in ways that we didn't expect, especially if you're burnt out, if you have a dysregulated nervous system, if you have any kind of childhood trauma or mental health issues, that kind of space. And what I found is early retirement created almost enough space in my life to completely fall apart. It took me about two years to really like unpack what the hell was going on because for all intents and purposes, I'm incredibly fortunate. I have an amazing partner. I love my house. I have pets. I'm getting to do work that's really meaningful to me. I have full control over my schedule and I'm surrounded by friends who love me. I mean, there's so much about my life where I'm so fortunate. And it was driving me up a wall that like I didn't have the capacity to enjoy it because of my mental health issues. So... Lots to unpack there. So much to unpack there. And I, I really appreciate it because that I think you know, that's a big part of why I'm doing the work that I'm doing now is I had a different good fortune path, but I married my wife. She was finishing dental school and that catapulted the income spectrum from being a professional firefighter into this. And then we made the decision for me to stay home. And so it wasn't a true retirement, but it was a, an alleviation of the responsibility to earn income for the household. Mm-hmm. And I was going to be the stay-at-home dad. And it just, it blindsided me with all these questions about who am I? What role do I play in the relationship? What what do you mean I don't have to make any money? Like, it just blew my mind. But, and also you talk about that spaciousness, all these big questions about life and what's the meaning of life and what am I supposed to do here? The ex- and it took me far more than two years to up back and work through that. And so this is not something that you just see you've lived through yourself, but you see this with other people that are get to these breakpoints where they create spaciousness in their life and then their life paradoxically falls apart. Diana, in the community of people that you're working with, you see other people also going through a similar type of phenomenon where they reach this financial goal of financial independence, retirement early, whatever you want to call it. Everything on the outside is going for them, but on the inside, the world's falling apart. Yes. And it's a really almost like shameful condition. I mean, think about how... I think the World Bank reported at one point that half the world's population is living on less than $5 a day. Like what a first world problem to be like, oh my gosh, I'm rich and like I have so much time to like deal... You know what I mean? (laughs) It's like it almost feels very shameful to be so fortunate and not have the capacity to enjoy it. And so that's why I think it's really hard for people to talk about this. Because I know for me, it was like really embarrassing that everything's going so well for me. And yet I'm still struggling with my mental health. There are people in this world that are like really struggling. They're living paycheck to paycheck. They can't even put freaking food on the table. And I'm falling apart because I have too much free time it feels shameful. It feels like a first world problem. And so people don't talk about this, but it is real. And I think that it's... For me, it was almost like a source of shame to admit that I was depressed, that I was anxious, and I couldn't really figure out why. And it also had nothing to do with my circumstances. And I'm not to blame for it. That took me a long time to realize that 
just because you're depressed, you don't have to have difficult circumstances to be depressed. So that was definitely a learning. But I think there's a lot of different elements to why people feel this way when they retire early. Some of it can be due to like, in my personal experience, it was much more about realizing my childhood trauma was still driving the ship. And also that I'm just not skilled at regulating my nervous system. And so I've had to kind of like come to terms that that's where this is all coming from. But for other people, it's that loss of identity, right? And we get a lot of our sense of self-worth from productivity and from working. And that's a cultural norm. So people who retire early or leave the workforce early, not only are are we kind of opening ourselves up to kind of uncover the maybe emotional things that are below the surface, but also it's like how people look at us. Like, are we deadbeats now that we're not contributing to society in the way that we used to? Aren't we too capable and too educated to be checking out early? Are, are we no longer contributing to the world in a meaningful way? Those, that kind of loss and our addiction to work and productivity. I think is another thing that we need to sort out when we leave the workforce early. So there's just, there's layers to it. There's so many layers to it. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. Ah. I just had this really uncomfortable thought come up, Diana. I'm just going to own it. I'm like, I'm so glad she's saying it and I'm not saying it because it's everything I've been thinking. And so like, I'm, mm. I am grateful that you're saying it because like from the shame of who am I to have these problems to the addiction mm-hmm. to work and work as identity. And it's realizing that the childhood trauma is still driving the show. And you've talked mm-hmm. about dysregulated nervous system. And so What's the connection for you between childhood trauma, addiction to work, and dysregulated nervous system? How do you explain the relationship between those things? Yeah. So I told you I have no sense of privacy. So I'm just going to tell you what my childhood trauma is. When I was two years old, so my mom was the breadwinner. She was an RN. And my dad was a stay-at-home dad. And he died of a heart attack at 42 years old. So I was two and my brother was four. And he was in the house with us. My mom worked night shift. And so she was sleeping at the time the event occurred. And I have no memories of this at all. I have no conscious memories. And for most of my life, I would tell you that I feel really lucky that I don't remember my dad and I don't remember this occurrence because to me, it's not affecting me because I don't have any conscious memories of it. Those memories are stored in my body, right? So just because I don't remember it in my mind, it doesn't mean that it's not there. And I experienced this at a time when I didn't have language to process it. And as we know, I'm a talker. I'm a verbal processor. But when I was two, I couldn't verbally process this traumatic event. And to have your primary caregiver 
die in front of you at such a young age, that's a profound trauma that I never realized affected me. And not only did I lose my dad, but I lost my mom too, because she never recovered from that ever to this day. And so I grew up in a house where my mom was extremely depressed. She was in a lot of pain. You know, she never wanted kids. She had them for my dad. He's the one that really wanted kids. So now she's got these kids that are these constant reminders of what she lost because we look exactly like him. And it just, it was a very traumatic thing. And my brother is even worse off because he remembers. And my understanding, again, I have no memory of this and memory is fuzzy and malleable, right? So everything that I'm telling is told to me by my mom and family members. But my understanding, and I don't know how long this went on, but he had died and us at two and four years old thought that he was sleeping. So we were interacting with his body thinking he was sleeping. And for my brother to realize that he actually wasn't sleeping, he blames himself, right? He thinks if I would have known, I could have woken up mom and she could have helped sooner. It was also really, we couldn't understand at that young age when she was doing CPR that she wasn't hurting him. She was doing CPR to try to save his life. He was long gone by then. It was, he was immediately gone from the heart attack. But so my brother watched my mom thinking he was harming my dad. And then, you know what I mean? It's just, there's so much to this that is so sad and tragic. And so I grew up in a home where I didn't experience love at a really young age. My mom was not capable of loving me the way that I needed to be loved. And so that when you're, I've read a lot and learned so much about attachment theory and how your relationship with your parents is the most important relationship and the most formative relationship you ever have. And if that's screwed up, you're kind of screwed up for life, right? Because it affects, <laughs> it, and it's not that it's not healable, right? Like I'm in the process no, of healing right. it, but it, it is a huge undertaking to recognize that that's what's going on and then to take the steps to reparent yourself and give yourself the love that you never got from your most formative relationships. That is hard, hard work. But how that kind of manifested for me is in overachievement. I never got to be in my life. I was a straight A student. I went to college on a full academic scholarship and climbed the corporate ladder and I retired at 30, 33. So it, <laughs> it tracks, it tracks, right? But yeah, it's, it's this kind of ambition and overachievement, just like my not having a sense of privacy, all of this, it's trauma response. And it took me 36 years to realize that that's what's going on. And that's what's at the root of, of my mental health. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And there's, it's a moved deeply by your willingness and kind of the the blessing of no the no personal filter. But it's knowing that like even in sharing that story, there there is an impact for you. And hopefully some of it's positive. We talked about before the show, what do you hope to get out of this? And you said, well, just being able to talk about it, talk about what I want to talk about is helpful as part mm-hmm. of the healing process. But yeah, that you know the attach discovering attachment theory and the meaning of attachment has just been one of the most profoundly liberating and devastating experiences of my mm-hmm. life. And I remember when I first started learning about attachment theory, I wanted nothing to do with it. Oh, I know. <laughs> Did you have that same response where you're like, yeah. oh, hell no, this better not be true. 
Well, because a lot of this stuff is like, it's in your subconscious, right? Like it's below the level of language and conscious thought. So like even like the weirdness I have with my mom, it's like, I, I'm so triggered by her still. And I like, I don't understand what it is. And like intellectually, I have a sense, like I can explain to you and pontificate about like my relationship with my mom and how it all relates, right? But the reality is that like what's actually going on is way under the surface. And I think what happens and why it's so confusing for us is like what we think the issue is, the actual issue is underneath that. The issue is not the issue. So like in, even in talk therapy, I've had 12 different therapists that have absolutely not helped me at all, right? And the reason is because we would sit there and talk about my mom all day. And the issue is not that my mom didn't love me. In some ways, maybe that's a, a portion of it. But the real issue is that my dad really loved me and I lost that, right? And my mom is just it, to, to expect that she could fill that hole even if she was a healed whole person that wasn't struggling with depression, she would have to have that expectation of her to be able to fill that gap that was left there when my dad died is unreasonable, right? So it's not about her. It's about grieving this loss and finding ways to do that because that loss is so deeply embedded that it's hard to get to, especially through talk therapy, even though I'm a talker right? I need things, somatic practices, EMDR, that kind of stuff. Trauma that's stored in your body needs physical release. So let's talk about that. I mean, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. so grateful that you, you're aware of this. You're able to communicate about this. And as a non-mental health professional, you're not a licensed mental health professional, by the way, right? Or did I no, just not know that? About I'm you? absolutely not. So take everything I say with a grain of salt, because what do I know? I'm figuring it out for myself. <laughs> no, but I think that there's almost a blessing in that because you're not dyed in the wool of the particular school of thought of therapy, mm -hmm. right? It's like, yeah. no, I'm a person looking for answers and I know what's helping me and I know what's not helping me. Yeah. And you've tried 12 different talk therapists. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the difficult reality that I'm settling into because I am a trained talk therapist. And mm -hmm. I love processing and I love helping people verbally process. And yet when I study the science of embodied memory and trauma and the felt sense of attachment and bonding, it's like, my words are pretty much useless for most of the experiences that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And so there's yeah. this whole field, and I think you're alluding to it, right? Is sensory motor psychotherapy, somatic therapy, which is the mm -hmm. embodied practices. And then you reference EMDR which is, that is the therapeutic model that broke open my childhood trauma that was repressed, mm. right? So, you know, this is, it's a incredible journey talking about like the therapy journey. I'm watching myself say the therapy journey is hard and difficult. And I'm thinking about your, everything I read about personal finance, it's hard. It's difficult. Where's the light? Where's the joy? And I'm like, I'm trying to find the light and the joy <laughs> in the therapy journey. But it's like, you're constantly confronting the truth of what you think you understand about how your mind and brain actually work. Mm -hmm. And the science on how our minds, brain, bodies all work is phenomenal. And it, it forces you to reconfront what you think you actually need. Yeah. And what's, where are you at in that journey? Before the show started, you talked about you had recently been in a major, mm -hmm. major depressive episode and actually got relief at your conference economy. So where are you at in your healing journey? 
what are some of those lessons that you could share yeah. now? So, you know, I've always struggled with depression and anxiety, I would say throughout most of my life for good reason, right? It's a result of my childhood trauma. I didn't realize that until literally like in this last year. But I would say it really came to a head when I started my business and when I moved to Ohio. So I was living in New York City and I moved to Ohio in 2017 and I started working remotely, which created a lot of isolation, not good for me. So a combination of that and also starting my business, it's almost like the entrepreneurship is extremely emotional. And I was already a wreck. You know what I mean? So it just kind of like highlighted things that I was just not ready to deal with. It uncovered insecurities that I just wasn't ready for. And I didn't realize that that was going to be so challenging for me. And so what ended up happening since 2019, I have gone through extremely deep depressions. Every three to six months, I'm in a hole for three to six months. And every single time this would happen and every time I would come out of the hole, I would think I figured it out. Because like the first time that I came out of the hole in a big way was because I had stopped drinking alcohol. And I was like, well, this is the key. As long as I don't drink alcohol, I'm going to be okay. Well, that wasn't right. Then I started getting like super into my health and I did 75 hard and I was working out all the time and like still not drinking and taking really, really good care of myself, like doing all of those things, you know, meditating every day and like kind of really just doing the whole health nut thing, right? And it still didn't matter. I still fell into the hole, right? And I would say like even this last round, I had been... I started doing EMDR. I had hired someone to help me with social media. So I felt like I really enjoyed working with her. And so I felt like I solved some of my isolation issues. And I started using a new system for project management. And I just love organization and it got me all jazzed, right? And so that... I was on this high probably in the summer of last year for about two to three months. And this is the pattern. Every It's like two or three months, I'm on a high. But here's the thing that what's made me realize that all of these things that I thought had healed me hadn't really healed me. I was getting myself into almost a hypomanic state and I wasn't sleeping. So I've always had trouble with sleep. Always have trouble with sleep. And when I am doing really well, I'm hopping out of bed at like three in the morning, roaring to start the day, like so excited. I'm freaking people out because I'm sending them emails at four in the morning because I'm just so like lit up. And what happens is because when it comes to regulating your nervous system, a lot of people think of it as like you're trying, you know, you're kind of stressed out. But I also experience the other side of the spectrum where it's almost like I'm too happy. I'm buzzing. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I mean, even I feel it right now, right? I'm like sweating talking to you because I'm so excited, right? And so the regulating the nervous system is like, it goes on either side of the spectrum for me. I swing wildly. And what happens when I go too long, a matter of two to three months sleeping three to four hours a night, my body goes, okay, that's enough. And it throws me into a depressive state for five months in bed. And so what I'm it took me years to figure this out. And I'm talking to doctors about it. And I'm like, I really think there's something to do with sleep. I think there's something to do with sleep. And no one will listen to me. They just want to medicate me with antidepressants. And so I feel like I've gotten to a place where I recognize that 
I know that you're a mental health professional and I say this with like so much respect, but I think there's so they want to do a lot of good, but there's limitations to that. And at the end of the day, the person who can advocate for their health the most is me, right? Just like with your money, like no one's going to care about your money and be able to have that level of discernment except for you. So you increase your level of financial literacy. Will you increase your level of mental literacy of what's going on with your mental and physical health? And then you can make discernments on if you agree with a doctor's diagnosis or what they're saying is going on. And I have had the suspicion that the trigger is sleep and there's something to do with sleep with me that needs to be investigated, despite the fact that doctors have been dismissing this for years. But before every single depressive episode, I have noticed overwhelming exhaustion. And I'll say to myself, I'm just going to lay down for today. I'm just going to relax today. And that one day turns into five months or three months or whatever it is. But it's a long stretch of time of like deep, deep depression. And so I think for me, realizing that like this last round when I was doing really well and I was doing EMDR, I think the EMDR was incredibly helpful in identifying that the childhood trauma is still playing a role because I really had no idea. So that was extremely helpful. But I also think it brought it up at a time when I did not have the processing skills to actually deal with that trauma. And I think that it contributed to this last depressive episode. And so now what I'm doing is I recognize my patterns. I recognize that this is a challenge for me. I'm not in the place of like, oh, I'm feeling great right now. Everything's fine. I'm not out of the woods yet. I know I'm not out of the woods yet. But what I'm doing is I have the right support in place. I have much more awareness around it. I bought this aura ring. Talk about money. This is a $500 ring that is monitoring my heart rate and my sleep patterns. And I'm getting a ton of data on what is happening with me physically. And what it's telling me is that my heart rate is too high all the time. Like I can actually show what it is right now because I guarantee that it's too high. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not... Even when I'm sleeping, I'm not... My heart rate is not going low enough for that sleep to be restorative. And the data is showing that, right? And when I've talked... Again, so many therapists, I've been medicated multiple times. Everyone, I try to bring this to people's attention and it's like, let's just medicate this away. But it has to do with nervous system regulation. And... So I am on a journey of learning how to regulate my nervous system and what tools are really going to work for me and dealing with this childhood trauma. And um, there is something that I'm doing in December. Have you heard of the Hoffman process? I feel like I've heard of that, but I'm no, I have no real awareness. It's almost like an accelerated childhood trauma healing center. And you basically... And it's expensive, but you go for a week. And you, you're like locked up with a bunch of psychotherapists and it has incredible results. And so it came highly recommended from someone that I trust who actually listened to me about what's going on with my body and my mind and my mental health. And it came highly, highly recommended from someone I trust. So that's, that is something that I'm trying next. But I'm continuing to try to figure it out, right? Like this, I'm not doing this interview as like, someone who has it all figured out. This is a process that I will be... It's almost like I think about mental health as that spiral staircase. It's not linear. We're kind of like going around the issues over and over and over again on our path to healing, but we're we're able to see them from like 
an elevated spot every time, every time we go around. And so that's where I'm at. I feel like that was a very long answer. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm a talker. It's okay. (laughs) You are a talker and I'm a therapist. And so I was practicing my listening and attending to, (laughs) and I was just like, I am loving all of this. And it, look, I really appreciate you saying with all due respect to the mental health professionals, there are some really big gaps in understanding and framing of what's going on. And, you know, I'm in a similar place in that journey of understanding it is about physiological arousal and how to reset the nervous system. I've fallen in love with polyvagal theory. Have you come across that yet? Mm -hmm. Gorgeous. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So that's the dysregulation, the window of tolerance, like that stuff has been so helpful and understanding, you know, this is, I got no training as a marriage and family therapist on brain anatomy or physiology. Mm-hmm. Turns out physiology and brain anatomy have a lot to do with how you show up in the world. And look, oh, yeah. sometimes there's not enough understanding from the folks that get the brain anatomy and physiology side about the complexity of the family system and the way that shapes what happens in your brain, right? Which is what attachment tries to cover. Mm-hmm. But uh, long way around the barn. Yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces. And what I really like about what you said is in the end, you need to become your own best self-advocate yeah. for understanding what's going on with you because even if you have a really enlightened, competent therapist, there's only so much they can transfer to you and do with you in an hour a week. Exactly. And like, if you are, this is the analogy, if you are 500 pounds overweight mental health wise, you know, it's a crude analogy. It's like an hour a week with a therapist ain't going to cut it, bud. Right. Like you have to do a lot of your own reading, growing and development. This is your life to live. It's not your therapist's life to live. And so I'm with you and it's not to shame anybody that isn't there or not there, but just an invitation to read, to consume, to sort through because tying it full circle, right? Just like with personal finance, you are subject to other people's views of what's right for personal finance. As long as you remain financially illiterate, Mm -hmm. the same is true of mental health. You are subject to the therapist and everybody else's ideas of mental health until you develop your own mental health literacy and you can sort the wheat from the chaff. Yes. And that that's not an easy message to hear, but it's an important one and it's part of the healing journey. Well, and I hope that it's helpful to, you know, I really feel so much compassion for people that struggle with their mental health and they can't afford therapy. And like you see in these, like, you know, I'm in all these Facebook groups about personal finance and it's like, I'm really struggling with my mental health. If only I could afford therapy, I'd be able to fix this. And let me tell you, as someone who has thrown tens of thousands of dollars at this problem, that just because you have money doesn't mean it's a quick fix, right? I think money is helpful. I'm really happy that I've been been in the financial position that I can afford to throw money at this problem. But as someone who is like really wants to get the full value out of the money I spend, it's been incredibly frustrating to spend tens of thousands of dollars and not get the results that I'm hoping for in addressing my mental health. And I think that the answer that you hear a lot, if someone's struggling mentally, and this is what I get all the time, well, why don't you just go to therapy and get medicated? Right? That is the answer that everyone goes to. If you're not, just go talk to someone if you're having a hard time. It's like, it drives me mad because I did that 12 times. And that's just 12 formal therapists. I can't tell you how many primary doctors that tried to shove Prozac down my throat or how many Reiki healers and psychics and tarot card readers and energy work people. I mean, 
I mean, if you count those people, it's probably at least 50 people that I have sought out to help me in my state of desperation. So like, as much as we want to believe if I had money to throw at this problem that it would solve it, I'm here to tell you that that's not necessarily the case. It's almost guaranteed that it's not the case. It might be a part of the solution, but yeah, there's so much more, Diana. I feel like the conversation is just getting going and yet I have to wrap this conversation <laughs> I up. So I hope that you would be open to being a guest again because Absolutely. there's a lot to be said about mental health, personal finance, the interaction between the two of them. So Diana, as we wrap up today, is there a parting piece of guidance, wisdom, or hope that you'd like to offer folks? Self-compassion is the lifeline. Full stop. And if you can let your curiosity be bigger than your fear, it will guide you to figuring it out. That's what I wish I could tell my younger self. Well, I hope that everyone's listening can hear that as self-compassion. And then I'm not going to repeat this perfectly well, but you said it. Let your curiosity be greater than your fear and it will guide you to where you need to go. And that's an ongoing Mm -hmm. process. And so I know your curiosity will continue to lead you on your journey as mine will. And partly why our paths have crossed and will likely continue to cross. So, and thank you so much for your warmth, your journey and your vulnerability. Until next time. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.